For all the amazing powers of Python, deploying packaged apps that leverage native OS-level capabilities isn't really one of them. But it can be done. We have a great guest, Rhett Turnbull, here to tell us how he built his distributable macOS app, Textinator, that uses macOS's native vision recognition framework through Python. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 338, recorded September 25th, 2022. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm. And follow the show on Twitter via at TalkPython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at TalkPython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. Brett, welcome to TalkPython to me. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here. So many interesting things to cover on the show. I'm really, really excited. Let's start with the excitement, I guess, of saying we're both excited about Mac <laughs> computers. It's about, a, I guess, a one-third split, maybe not quite that many for Mac developers in the Python space, but there's a lot of people who write code either on a Mac or for people who use a Mac, and it would be nice to make a little bit more of a native thing with Python. And so we're going to talk about this really awesome app that you wrote. And here we are because of a tweet <laughs> follow-up for the Python Byte show. You sent a really cool tweet, and I'm like, this is amazing. We have to talk about this. And so we're going to talk about building Mac apps with Python, like native apps that go into the dock, not just something that could run a script, but you know, a thing that you could get a regular user to believe is an app, and, and they would call it an app. And the other is you also happen to work for the U.S. Space Force, which is very interesting. So we'll touch on that maybe a little bit at the end. There's some programming tie-ins as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, I'm, again, happy to have you here before we into that though. Let's start with your story. How do you get into programming Python? I'm a hobbyist programmer, self-taught, but I've been programming since I was eight years old. And roughly around 1981, my dad brought home a TRS-80 Model 3 from Radio Shack. <laughs> it was one of those all-in-ones. It's a 12-inch black and white screen, built-in keyboard, and it had a five and a quarter inch floppy, which was was a pretty big deal for those that days. That is a big deal. I was going to ask, does it, did it have a cassette player or did it have it, a floppy? It did not. It had the floppy actually built into the consoles and all in one. Oh. And, People must uh, have been jealous. You're like, yeah. where's your cassette player? <laughs> no, no, let me show you. It's this huge thing. Yeah. And, it, and it, I don't remember how much it was, but it was uh, the, the floppy disk held, but it was like 80K or something. It was a lot yeah. of for back then. He had it for work, but I, was, I just was fascinated by it. I thought, you know, I love the idea that you can, this machine, can respond to what I tell it to do and do something completely different. And so yeah. I got into programming. He taught me a little bit of basic. It came with basic, Tandy basic installed on there. I got into that a little bit. And then from there, I moved into uh, Commodore 64 later and uh, IBM PC, and then eventually found my way to the Mac. Cool. And uh, just, yeah, I've been using the Mac for a long time. I found Python about four years ago. Um, I've used a number of different languages through the years. Probably most of the work I've done was in Perl. A lot of Fortran in college. I'm an engineer by trade. And back then we oh, used course. Fortran. In fact, I programmed Fortran on the backs uh, back in the day. Cool. What, what type of engineering? Astronautical engineering. So mm -hmm. uh, everything dealing with space, satellites, yeah. rockets, spacecraft. The coolest orbits, type kind of, of engineering yeah. it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. yeah it was a lot awesome. of fun. But we did a lot of Fortran. But you know, I taught myself Perl along the way. And I used that for years. That was sort of my go-to anytime I needed to get something done. And then I remember a few years ago, I read an article about Python. It was, it was the up and coming thing. And mm -hmm. so I thought, well, let me give this a try. So I started playing around with it and I've done almost exclusively Python since then. It's been a lot of fun. Cool. So once you found it, you were like, all right, this is a, this place, I feel comfortable in this place in this language and I want to do more and just stuck with yeah, it. Yeah. It, it's a gr easy language to learn, right? But it grows with you is what I found with Python in it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can obviously build industrial grade apps with Python, but it's really easy to start out too. And I will say, you know, I just, I actually first came across Python, oh, quite a few years ago in the late nineties when I discovered Perl and I'd come from a C and Fortran background. And I remember looking at this whole white space thing and thinking, there's no way that I can 
program with that. <laughs> I need the curly braces. I need the semicolon. Yeah. And now, you know, to be fair, back then, you know, on a Windows PC programming, it was literally with Notepad. Yeah. There wasn't black. There were Pepe. You know, there weren't any formatters, any of that kind of stuff, right? So, so white space was hard actually getting it right. But uh, you know, once I got over that, I actually really like the white space now. I think it makes the code a lot easier to read and cleaner. And uh, I. Yeah, I really have enjoyed working with Python. Yeah, the white space, I do feel like there's a certain number of people that just look at that and go, nope, next language. <laughs> what else am I going to, what else might I learn yeah. today? Because that <laughs> one's out. But it really is something that it seems like it's a big deal. And then you kind of work with it. You're like, oh, especially now the tools are just auto indenting for you. You know, yeah. you're like, oh, this is kind of, it's just omnipresent, but it's, you don't have to think about it so much. You exactly. Know, you, yeah. and you hit enter and like, oh, I'm indented already. That's cool. Just keep typing, you know? So yeah, very neat. How about now? What are you doing these days? I mentioned something about the Space Force. Yeah. So I work for the Space Force. I'm an op- actually an officer in the Space Force. I've been a, a, a career Air Force officer. I've been in the Air Force since 1995 as an astronautical engineer. And then last year had an opportunity to transfer from the Air Force into the Space Force. And being an astronautical engineer and a guy who's worked in space my whole career, that was a no-brainer. It's like, yeah, yeah it seems like exactly the right That's fit, exactly right? where I where I should be. And so today I'm an officer in the Space Force. And my day job is I'm a chief engineer for an organization called Space Systems Command, which is part of the Space Force that develops and acquires all of our new satellite systems, rocket systems, ground systems, all of our networks and infrastructure, that kind of thing. So that's a lot of fun. I get to do a lot of fun engineering in my day job mm-hmm. and, and do a, get to do Python on the weekend. Yeah. Do you get to run any Python on any of the satellites? I know that some of the satellites are controlled with Python or API, not necessarily for the Space Force, but you know, like some of the scientific ones. Yeah. So none of the one systems that I've used are using Python to actually directly interact with the satellite, but we are using Python in a number of different places. Some of the, the apps that we run that help process data, or sure. analyze display data, do, do those kinds of things. The, the data science dashboardy yeah. thing that happens to data after it gets out of space. Yeah, comes, exactly. Comes back. Yeah. Well, well, that sounds like a super, super fun job. And I was talking to somebody, a get together just earlier this week. Everyone's kind of fascinated that I can have a job that is podcasting. They're like, okay, well, who are you <laughs> interviewing this week? <laughs> so, well, I'm going to interview a guy who does cool Python stuff and he works at a at the Space Force and someone else is like, oh, that's amazing. And then someone else is, what's the Space Force? So maybe for those of us who don't know, we know what the Air Force is. What's the Space Force? Yeah, sure. The Space Force is the newest of the military services. Uh, we were established um, just uh, in December of 2019 as and sort of birthed out of the Air Force. And so the initial people that came over to Space Force uh, were came from the Air Force, although we've now brought in people from all the other services, Army, Marines, Navy to be part of Space Force, who, people who transfer just like I did. And the job of the Space Force is to organize, train, and equip guardians, is what we call people in the Space Force, to do space operations for the nation. And so if you, you know, things like GPS, for example, which I know everybody's familiar with, if you pull out your phone and use Waze or a Maps app or even do banking, which all relies on GPS timing signals, those kinds of things. We even use GPS in a corn maze recently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so all all of that is coming from a signal from a satellite in space yeah. that is run by the Space Force. I mean, we do a lot of other things too, weather, missile warning, communications, remote sensing, all sorts of different missions that the Space Force does. But we do all of the, the space systems that support the rest of the services, you know, communications, navigation, yeah. location, all those kinds of things. Sounds fascinating. And I suspect that many of these things were happening often under the Air Force banner or some other other banner, right? Yeah. And now it's just more formalized, right? Yeah, exactly. So the Air Force has been doing this mission for a long time. In fact, the Air Force originally designed and launched the GPS constellation that is still in operations today and is now run by the Space Force. But what we found was that space was becoming more and more important. Certainly, yeah, everybody's familiar with what SpaceX and a lot of the other commercial space companies are doing. A lot of really exciting things going on, but it's a lot more happening in space. The importance of space to our economy and our nation is increasing. And quite frankly, the threat to all of that is increasing. A number of other countries have paid a lot of attention to what we're doing in space and, and they are actively working on ways to deny the U.S. the ability to use some of those capabilities if they want to. We've seen some of that play out uh, in 
you know, things going on in, in Europe right now, in Ukraine, for example. Mm-hmm. So sure. because of the increased threat and the increase of importance of space to our economy and our, and our nation, we decided that we really wanted a team that was focused only on space. And that's all we did. Because for the, the Air Force, it was always, you know, an extra job in addition to everything else that they're doing. And so this, the only job Space Force has is doing space operations for the country. And so we have guardians, as I mentioned, focused on doing that job day in and day out. Well, very cool. It strikes me that this is one of the areas of the defense and military industry that is the least hands-on. It's, you know, the most, you almost never get to interact with you know, things in space directly, right? even with cameras necessarily, yeah. right? It's a little bit different than running over a hill or something. It, well, it is different. And, and you know, let me, I, first, I just want to add that, that anything I, I'm excited about Space Force and happy to talk about it, but anything I say is my opinion and not necessarily the opinion of the Space Force, the Department of Defense. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. But I will tell you, uh, you know, you're right, Michael, that we, people that interact with the space domain as part of the Space Force, except for the very small number of astronauts we have that work with NASA, largely do that through a computer screen. We do that through a piece of glass, a keyboard, and a network. And that makes the Space Force different than the other services, as you, yeah. as you alluded to. But that also means that we really want a workforce that really understands that, right? That understands the technical domain that's really digitally fluent. Space Force is really focused on building digital service and having a digitally native workforce that really understands computers, understands coding, understands cloud infrastructures and, you know, those kinds of things. All the underlying technologies that we need to do our job, we're really focused on building a workforce that understands those things. Yeah, that's what I was hinting at. I feel like a lot of the coding skills are are somewhat in the same realm as the kind of things that you you all need to do. Probably yeah. just a ton of custom software as well. Yeah, definitely. We, we use a lot of a commercial software, but we also do a lot of um, our own custom software. We have a couple of software factories where we've got uh, people from the Space Force Guardians who actually write code for other Guardians to use as part of their day job. Nice. Well, if we have some extra time at the end, we'll come back to that. But let's switch over to our main topic, I guess. And let's start with the, the genesis of this idea. And you created this project called Textinator. And it's open source in Python, obviously, which is why we're talking about it. And I'll link to the GitHub repo. And it says, the, the about for it says, simple Mac OS status bar menu bar app to automatically detect text in screenshots, which is pretty awesome. So yeah, it's one of those apps that's just an icon in the upper right by, by the clock it would be in the task bar little hidden down there if it was a Windows app, but it's, it's a Mac app. So that's, it lives up in the menu bar alone. And what does it do? So it's really simple. If you take a screenshot, if Textinator is running and you take a screenshot, it will search that screenshot for any text that it finds in the screenshot and copy that text to the clipboard. That's all it does. Super simple. But, you know, a useful thing, if you've got, you know, you're trying to take a screenshot, there's text on the screen, like on a, a link on a video or something, and, and you can't co- copy and paste it. All you got to do is yeah. screenshot it and Textinator will pick it up and stick it on your clipboard. That's fantastic. Does it automatically capture, the, is it just constantly looking for screenshots and then clipboard, you know, doing text recognition and then clipboarding that? Or do you have to trigger it? No, it, it'll, it'll do it all automatically. And what it's doing is it's, it's using this Mac built-in spotlight feature behind the scenes. And basically it sets up a query that's running in the background all the time. And the query says, Anytime there's a new screenshot, send me a, an alert. And then so when it gets that alert from the operating system that there's a new screenshot, it then it does the processing and copies everything to the clipboard. Otherwise, it's just sitting there waiting for an alert to pop up. Yeah, fantastic. I said this show sort of originated from a tweet. So just as a user, I talked about this app called Text Sniper, which I thought was pretty cool in the Mac App Store that lets you kind of screenshot an area of text and will capture it. It costs money and uh, you got to get it at the app store and so on. And you said in your tweet said, that's a really cool idea. And it inspired me to create Textinator. I love the name as well. And I just think it's fascinating. You were able to knock this out pretty quickly in Python. Yeah. The initial, it's grown a little bit because I've tried to put a few bells and whistles on it, but the initial, I knocked it out and, you know, Saturday afternoon, the initial capability, it was, you know, 
like 300 lines of code. It's fairly simple. And it was fairly simple because I don't have to do all the hard work. Um, I'm calling Mac framework API calls that are built into the Mac to do the, do the hard work of, hey, find the screenshot, detect the text, put the text on the clipboard, those kinds of yeah. things. And so it was actually fairly easy to throw together. And then I'm using a, a, another Python package called Rumps that does all the heavy lifting of actually, hey, put, putting an app into the menu bar with an icon and, and all those kinds of things. Rumps is fantastic. It has such a ridiculous name, but it's <laughs> so easy to build Mac yeah. apps with. Yeah, yeah, I've used it yeah. for quite a few different things. Uh, I've got a two, couple apps running right now on my Mac that, that I use every day that I built out of Python and Rumps. It's, uh, it's a really useful tool. That's cool. I'm starting to think of more that maybe I should create, but I, do, I have one as well, and maybe I'll, I'll talk about it a bit when we compare notes on, on yeah. yours. But <laughs> yeah, super cool. This is so useful. You know, there's all these different times. You're like, I really just want that text. And in Mac OS, you hit Command Shift 4 and you can select just a region of the screen. You don't have to screenshot the whole screen, which you'd get like, yeah. you know, the menu bar and like the navigation. Like all, you can just say, I want this section and it will grab that and then turn it into text, which is just amazing. I've used yeah. it for watching a, a video course or some kind of presentation. I'm like, I want that URL. They said, go to this huge long URL, just select, <laughs> snap paste into, you know, paste the text yeah. of the URL and go, right? Yeah, exactly. It's so useful for those kinds of things. And, uh, it, it, you know, I do want to add, this was inspired by uh, you mentioning Text Sniper, I think on, on the Python Bytes podcast, right? And Text Sniper is a great app. It's, you know, it's only like 10 bucks. So you should definitely check it out. But when you mentioned that, I had already been working with, playing around with the vision framework, which is the max ML powered, computer vision the, the, framework, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 And so I'd been playing around with that and I, and I knew that it would it was fairly easy to do this optical character recognition tech, you know, and grab the text from a picture. So I thought, well, I bet you I could recreate that. And I did play around a little bit to try to be able to actually draw the crosshairs on the screen myself and, and let you do that. <laughs> and in Python, you know, Python, that was actually kind of hard to do. But then, yeah. so I, then it dawned on me, well, the Mac already comes with the ability to do that, the screenshot app. Then I just had to figure out, okay, how do I grab that screenshot when it happens? Right. And it uh, turns how do out, you know there was a screenshot yeah. and then how do you get the text, yeah. right? And it turns out that that's super easy to do. If you tell the Mac, tell me when there's a new screenshot. You set up a, a query that basically runs just like you would if you use Spotlight on the Mac and it runs in the background. And anytime there's a, some new thing that matches your query, it lets you know and then your it runs your code. Yeah, that's amazing. How easy it was to knock out the vision framework and some of the ML tools, they're probably using the neural engine that's built into the latest chips as well. They're probably taking advantage of that. Yeah, I'm sure they are. I've got an older MacBook and they run fine on there too, but they're they're using the GPU on that. So it uses whatever hardware you have, but I'm sure if you've got an M1 more, you know, one of the newer Macs, it's using the neural engine. And it it's really surprising how accurate it is and how fast it is that they've done a really good job with that. Yeah. As we look at this, we'll also see, you know, people talk about, well, Python's slow. So how could you use Python to do this thing, right? I mean, I think that's always a funny statement to say Python yeah. is slow because it's it's slow until it's as fast as C or as fast exactly, as Rust. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it, it lives in so, these weird bimodal worlds, right? It's like really slow. All of a sudden, oh yeah, just as fast. Yeah. All uh, right. Yeah. I So me, you know, I've never found Python to be slow, but I guess it depends what you're doing with it. I'm, sure. I'm not doing really big, heavy data crunching. But, you know, just as in this example, it's a Python app that's doing the text detection, but the text detection is not running in Python. That's running exactly. in Objective-C or Swift or whatever native language that Apple wrote it in. And we're just calling that from Python. So the only slow part of that is actually setting up that call to translate between Python types and Objective-C types and go back and forth. And for, you know, there's a really great bridge for it called PyOBJC, which is short for PyObjective-C. Yeah. Objective-C is one of the languages that uh, has been around the Mac for a long time that Apple has used a long time, um, though they're migrating a lot more to Swift now. But PyOBJC does all that sort of translation across the bridge between Python and, and Objective-C. So you don't, for the most part, don't really even really have to think about it. Yeah, exactly. So what you did is you basically saw there was a screenshot and you say, you know, send that information off to 
the Objective C platform layer, and it just goes natively and does its thing. Which is, exactly, it, it's a pretty interesting bit of coordination. You know, you've got Rumps coordinating, working with the menu bar API, and you've got these various low-level OS platforms that you're talking to through High Objective C. And yeah, well, we'll see how you built it up, but it's there's, there's a lot of neat moving pieces there. This portion of Talk Pythonomy is brought to you by Sentry. How would you like to remove a little stress from your life? Do you worry that users may be encountering errors, slowdowns, or crashes with your app right now? Would you even know it until they sent you that support email? How much better would it be to have the error or performance details immediately sent to you, including the call stack and values of local variables and the active user recorded in the report? With Sentry, this is not only possible, it's simple. In fact, we use Sentry on all the TalkPython web properties. We've actually fixed a bug triggered by a user and had the upgrade ready to roll out as we got the support email. That was a great email to write back. Hey, we already saw your error and have already rolled out the fix. Imagine their surprise. Surprise and delight your users. Create your Sentry account at talkpython.fm slash Sentry. And if you sign up with the code TalkPython, all one word, it's good for two free months of Sentry's business plan which will give you up to 20 times as many monthly events as well as other features. Create better software, delight your users, and support the podcast. Visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and use the coupon code TALKPYTHON. Let's start with Python on the Mac because I know you have some opinions on yeah. how to get started there. Yeah, it's a good experience on the Mac, but it does take a little bit of finagling, I think, to get Python right. And the yeah, first thing and, you got to start with is, that, hey, which Python do I put on? How do I install it? And there's a number of different ways. There's a thing called Homebrew for the Mac, which is a package manager that installs apps and you know command line tools on the Mac. And that's great. It's, if you need if any kind of command line tool you need in the terminal, Homebrew can install it pretty fast. And so what I've seen is a lot of people are tempted just to install Python that way. Unfortunately, that can run into a number of different problems because Homebrew also uses that same Python to manage a lot of the other packages and things that it's installing. And so it might change that Python, update it, change something, and you don't realize it. And then now all of your stuff stops working. So after a few false starts with that, I decided just don't use the Homebrew Python for the Mac. And what I recommend for most people is just download it from python.org and you get the Mac installer, install it and run it. I, because I develop a bunch of different open source packages and want to test them on different versions of Python, I build my own Python and I use PyE and V to, to manage that. And that way I can run a, a number of different versions of it. Anaconda is also another great one for the Mac, but you really need to understand sort of the ins and outs of which Python you picked and what it's good for. Yeah. There's an article that you linked to talking about this as homebrew Python is not for you. Speaking to you as a developer. Yeah. This was by Justin Mayer. It's interesting and basically the fundamental problem that he talks about is that homebrew might change the underlying Python version, even if you don't ask it to, because you might brew install, I don't know, glances or some other thing that needs Python. And then it goes, well, great, we got a good yeah. new Python for that, right? And that could potentially break your virtual environments, which is not amazing. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, people can check this out and, and see what they think about this. But yeah, I would I, yeah, I recommend that you don't use homebrew. For developing, right? Homebrew is great for everything. I use it every day. But yeah. if you want to develop Python, get your own Python that that is only going to get updated if you decide to update it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, for me, I'm I'm okay if if my virtual environments change. I have a whole bunch of hotkeys and shortcuts and aliases that I can just recreate and reset up those things. So if, if something changes, I'll just drop into the terminal and blow it away and recreate it. But that's because I've been doing it for a long time. I know a lot of people, whether or not a virtual environment is active, where is Python, what is installed, all those things become very frustrating to people. Yeah, so this could help potentially avoid those those troubles. Out of curiosity, I did a brew list, see what I got installed here. Probably got about 120 <laughs> different things installed. So yeah, like uh, Richie in the audience, which says uh, brew is my go-to, I'm there uh, I'm there with it as well. So yeah. the article, by the way, mentions this thing, which I have not used, ASDF, which is, I don't even know what to make of the name. I mean, it's just like, I just just hit left fingers, just go down at the same <laughs> of my app, right? But apparently this is about installing 
you can use this to install different tools and frameworks. Basically, it's for uh, CLI for managing different runtimes of Ruby and Perl, and there's a plugin for Python. Have you played with this? I have not. It looks really cool, but I've got my Mac to the point where it works, and I just don't mess with it. <laughs> Mine is so janky. Honestly, just as a sidebar talking about this is, I got this, this is a Mac Mini M1, and I got it in, or I ordered it right when it came out, basically, or a week after. And so I got it right away, and many of the things that you would pip install or certainly brew install, it would say, well, we don't have that for your platform. Like, it took about a month before I yeah. could reliably pip install everything I needed because the wheel didn't exist for you know the ARM 64 yeah. of whatever. And so I've got the Intel version of brew put on here, and then I've got the C++ tools for Apple Silicon. And so when I try to do certain things that drop down to the compiler, like PyMV, which I've tried and I can't get it to work, there's some mispatch about like the compiler flags and what platform it thinks it's on. I'm, I'm tempted to just reformat the whole computer now that everything's <laughs> stabilized, but I am waiting until October because if they ship a new, much, much better one, I might not even go through that process. But yeah, yeah I would love to use PyNV. I haven't been able to get it to work. Maybe ASDF is the thing to do. I yeah, I'll give it a try. Yeah, maybe worth trying. Certainly worth trying, I would say. Now... That's great for creating and getting your Python there. And one of the first things I guess that came to mind when I thought about what your app does, I'm like, oh, oh, this is going to be really tricky because I can get, say, a, a little Rumps app to run. But when you really get down to it, there's a lot of things about, is it from a signed developer? You know, what permissions does it request? Like, does it request the, the be a server or access your file system or, you know, look at the clipboard, all these different things can get a little bit tricky. You want to talk about this permissions a bit? Yeah, sure. That, and that's a tricky thing for every back app, whether it's in Python or, right. or not, right? It, and so there's a, I guess, you know, there's a good thing and a bad thing there. From a, from a user's perspective, Apple's done a really good job locking down the computer uh, in privacy, make sure that apps cannot access your data unless you explicitly allow them to access your data. From a developer's perspective, that means apps can't access your data unless you explicitly allow it. So You've got to keep that in mind as a developer that you've got to make sure that your app has the right permissions. And so there's a couple of different ways to do that. Every app, a dot app bundle that ships on the Mac has an info.plist, a, a property list file that's uh, uh, basically just a, a dictionary of key values and that tell the app, you know, various set, settings for the app. One, a couple of those things are, are permissions or entitlements that you need to request and say, hey, I want my app to be able to do this. For example, for Textinator, one of the things it does is request access to the desktop and it'll pop up and then you can grant access to the desktop. And it, but it, until then, it won't, it won't be able to see the desktop. Presumably because the default behavior of taking a screenshot is to drop the file onto the desktop. So exactly. you need to be able to go hunt for those files, yeah. right? Yeah. In fact, I, when I first got the first version of Textinator working, it wasn't doing that properly. And so I was doing screen, taking screenshots and it never found them. And because it was, it just couldn't see the disk, the, the screenshots were happening, but the whole query system is smart enough to say, hey, you're, you don't have permission to see these screenshots, so I'm not even going to tell you about them. So it was never even getting okay. alerted that, that it was getting a screenshot. Um, so I had to get that sorted out. And then if you can change the default location of a screenshot and put it somewhere else, and if you do that, you actually have to go into the system settings, uh, the privacy settings, and actually give Textinator full disk access so that it can see where those screenshots are, you know, if they're outside of your home directory. Yeah, there is a screenshot application. And if you run it, basically, that's like your preferences for, you know, it's not just a hockey, but you can go yeah. and change your preferences for the, the screenshots. Yeah, there's a property list setting. You can do it from the command line as well. But yeah, the screenshot app is the easiest way to do that. Yeah. Okay, so basically, you go through the, the, the info.plist and you just express, I, I need access to the disk or do you try to get there and then macOS says, hey, this thing is trying to do it. Do you want to yeah. like, let so it So what do? I did in Textinator is one in the info.plist you put in, what you actually put in there is a the message that gets shown to the user when they actually try to access the desktop or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Right. And so um, what I have Textinator do is when it first fires up, it tries to access the desktop to force that message to pop up so yeah. that you grant right away. Otherwise, you'll never see the screen. It'll never see the screenshots. So that's an easy way to just, you know, to force the user that way. As soon as they start it, they've already got their attention. 
it'll pop up a dialog box and say, hey, Textinator wants access to the desktop, allow, and then now it has access. I'm always suspicious of apps that pop up these little, you know, enter your admin password yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason, but they do it just out of the blue. You know, it's, it's one thing, like if I launch a new app and it says, there's an update, do you want to update? You say yes, and yes. it'll pop up. You're like, yep, this is okay. it trying to update itself. But if, you know, it's running and it just behind the scenes does an update or something, yeah. says, oh, we need your password. You're like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on here. So I think, anyway, the reason I bring this up is I think it's a good idea to like, as they're interacting with it, just get those out of the way straight away. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, you're right. Well, well Textinator, once, you know, if it pops up later on, and you've forgotten all about it, it does definitely look suspicious. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm a little, uh, a little unsure. I, I should have gone and installed this, but no, like if it, if it's a timely yeah. one, it's, yeah, it's the other okay. Thing, well, also, you know, the other thing about it, installing apps is that they have to be signed and you get this really scary when you, you try to open it, you'll get a really scary warning saying, hey, this is signed by an unknown developer. It'll destroy your computer. Don't open, right? Kind of thing. And you actually have to right click and say open and and then say, yes, I really want to open this thing. And you only have to do that once, but the first time you do it, it does give you kind of the scary warning. So you got, you do need to know where is this code coming from that I'm going to try to run. So you built it with the ultimate, you built the app bundle with a Pi2 app, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. I wonder if there's a way to sign, if you have a developer account, if there's a way to sign. Oh that yeah, thing. I think you could. I don't have an Apple developer account. That's something you have to pay for. So I just, then yeah. I just tinker around, so I don't haven't bothered with that. So I, it's mine is self signed. But yes, you can, or you could do it after the fact. You could re-sign the app using the Apple signing tools, which you can run from the command line, and then re-sign the app with your developer signature. And you could even do that, and notarize it as well. Yeah, then it would it would just run with no. Then it would just run. Yeah, yeah, because sometimes depending on how you run it, it won't give you the option to run anyway. Like if you click, if it's in the little downloads section, and you just pop up that little fan and you click it, sometimes it'll just go, this is from an unknown yeah. developer, we won't run it. But if you right click and say run, it'll say, oh, are you sure you want to run it? Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it can be annoying. It can be a bit of a roadblock, but yeah. what and, are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. But that, and that's something to keep in mind if you, you know, a lot of things that is Python developers do sometimes, I know I do this, is, is whip out a little tool to help a family member or a friend or something, right? And mm -hmm. so if you're going to send them the, something to run, you've got to make sure you walk them through Okay, you've got to right click and then say open and then click allow access to the desktop or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Exactly. Or if you're building this app for your club or your kid's football team or soccer team or whatever, right? Then you're handing it off to people who don't necessarily know that it's trustworthy or how to make it go, but you kind of got to talk them through it. It's probably if you have a developer account, it probably would be cool to do. I say that as somebody who has an Apple developer account and a Rumps app, and it's not signed. So I should probably <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> but in, in theory, I think it would be cool. I'm, I'm intrigued on how I might go about doing that now. Yeah, I don't think it's that hard. I think you can just run the signing tools and add your signature on there. But uh, yeah, well, it just has to be trusted from a, something that Apple trusts, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Pi to app real quick. So to me, there's a bit of a danger that I might get on, into some ranty <laughs> sidetracks here in the show. But to me, I think it's a really a big hole in Python's capabilities. Let's put it that way, that there's not a way to say, press a button or run a command. And then I have a binary thing I give to people that from their perspective is an application with an icon that goes into their start menu or their dock that they click it and it comes out and it does yeah. things or they even just run the command line and it does things right the ability to send somebody an application that was created with python is super lacking if they're not a developer on the other end receiving it or not a, a server admin receiving it yeah that's very yeah, true just, i'll add one caveat to that michael the if it's a command line tool what i found is i've defaulted now just to use pipx yes, if they brew install pipx good. and then they can pipx install and they're good to go. Yeah. And it's super easy and it just works. And then inside the terminal, all your permissions are owned by the terminal. So once you've granted the terminal access to your desktop or your photos or whatever, any Python app you run will have access, no problem. So, but you, that's but, an absolutely good point. But for a GUI app, yeah, it's, it's just way harder than it ought to be. It, it is way harder not to be in. I would love to see something built into Python. I mean, right now, it seems like the big focus of so many of the 
of people doing high-end work on Python is about making it faster, do more, take more advantage of hardware. And I would not say sidetrack that work, but you know, once that's kind of done, the the low hanging fruit is how do I get a shippable thing? Yeah. Because after that, you know, you start to open up things like, well, if I could send out a binary, maybe I could send out a binary for iOS or Android. Exactly. And then all of a sudden we have mobile and like it just it unlocks so much. Talk Python to me is partially supported by our training courses. Do you want to learn Python, but you can't bear to subscribe to yet another service? At Talk Python Training, we hate subscriptions too. That's why our course bundle gives you full access to the entire library of courses for just one fair price. That's right. With the Everything Bundle, you save over 80% off the full price of our courses, and you own them all forever. That includes the courses published at the time of purchase, as well as courses released within about a year after the bundle. Stop subscribing and start learning at talkpython.fm slash everything. That said, what we have now are a couple of programs and tools that will bundle up the Python runtime. And we're just going to scratch the surface. There's a bunch of attempts on this, like PyOxidizer, which we won't touch on. But if you're building a Mac app, probably the way to go is Pyda app, because it's specifically about making Mac OS apps, right? Yeah, I... I've used uh, PyInstaller for command line tools. It'll mm-hmm. bundle up a, basically it's a zip file with all your Python code in it that unzips at runtime and runs. And then Py2App for GUI apps. There's another one called Beware, the Beware project that's really trying to yeah. solve that problem of, hey, I want to be able to run on Android and iOS and macOS and Windows. I've tried it a couple times. It looks really promising, but I keep running into problems and I go back to Py2App because I... I know how to make it work. Yeah, the briefcase project from them, I think is what it's called, yeah. is, is very interesting. Yeah. Right? But I'm holding out hope that they'll be able to solve some of these things. They're, they seem to be <laughs> yes. doing a lot of work on it. But Py2App, well, you run it and it will create basically an app bundle, which is how apps are distributed on your Mac. One thing you'll notice if you go to the, the text editor, the repo, is that there's a setup.py. And on all my other projects, I've switched to poetry and pyproject.toml. Mm-hmm. Okay. But but I have not figured out how to make Py2App work with that. So Py2App needs a setup.py. And so I use the setup.py anytime I have to use Py2App. Okay. How cool. I'm looking at your setup.py on the Textinator repo. Yeah. You've got this options here. And one of the things it has is icons, the various icons, which for your app, you actually need all these different yeah. sizes of icons, which is kind of a bit of a hassle. But then you give that file and it makes that the right, it does the right thing with it. And then you also have a plist, which has things like LS UI element is true or NS, <laughs> these names, NS de- desktop folder usage description. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, those things in the plist settings there are the things that are going to go into that info.plist for the app and pi to apple stick them in there. The LS UI element basically says, I want to run headless without being in the dock. And so that's how, the Rumps apps works. You'll get the little icon up in the status bar, but you won't see it in the dock. And then the mm-hmm. desktop folder usage description is that's the little message that will pop up when Textinator tries to access the desktop the first time. Right. Okay. So this is the way, one of the ways in which you configure the actual creation of the Mac side of things, not just the, the bundling of the Python, right? Exactly. So that stuff, you know, those settings there will actually go into the app and Py2App will stick them in there. Cool. I just want to give a quick shout out to this app here as well. I've had to create these icon sets for different apps. And there's this thing called the Icon Set Studio. And you just give it one icon and it will doesn't have very good reviews, but it worked well for me. Yeah. Okay, good. So, yeah. So, you know, there's yeah. that, but it, you basically give it one large icon and it'll create all the different variations and one of those icon files and stuff for you. So anyway, that's, that's a pretty cool one. All right. So Pi2 app. Yeah. And then you just give it a, a command line to build your application, right? Yeah. You run Pi2 app and it will create, it'll take, read in your setup.py, read in your all the files associated with your app and then bundle it up into the, the app file. Yeah, it takes a little bit of time and then there's a build in a dist folder and miraculously, it's really delightful actually. In the dist folder, I think it is, there's a whatever you called your application dot app. It has the icon. It looks like an app thing. You can drag it to your applications folder. You can put it in the dock. 
you know, if it's that kind of app. For the Rumps one, I'm not sure it makes a lot of sense to actually put it in the dock, but you know, it's as much an app as far as macOS is concerned as all the other ones, right? Exactly. Yeah, it, it's a native app, and it'll run. And I, yeah, for something like Textinator, I just put it in the applications folder and then add it to the startup items or my login items so that it just lo- starts running when I log into the computer. One thing to keep in mind is you might be tempted. You, you get that first time you build it, that, that app in your dist folder. If you run that, if, at least for Textinator, it won't work because it, that version of the app won't have the permissions to see your desktop. So because it's got it, it I guess the privacy settings are going to look at hey, which app and in which signature was signed and it's going to look for, hey, that version of it's got permission. That also means that if you upgrade uh, Textinator, you may have to go back into your settings and give it permission again. Okay. Yeah, permissions are always tricky. <laughs> but very cool. I, my experience is this has worked and it's been really nice. You can build yeah. all the .app files and or, uh, it's like those smart bundles, right? They're really folders, but they look like a single file. Yeah, it's it's a great way to handle. I do. I don't know if I agreed sufficiently enthusiastically with you, but PipX is absolutely the way to to hand out command line tools these days. People can get PipX by just reinstalling it, which brings in Python that PipX needs. So that already is set. Then if you just type PipX, like for example, PipX install PLS, right? For example, that's a really nice one. It's a LS replacement. I think I've talked about it before, but it's like sort of a developer-focused LS type of experience and you can get like little icons like for readmes or license files or whatever. But if you want this, you could go through the way of setting it up and running on Python or you could just pipx install PLS or glances or HTTP, HTTPIE, HTTP, right? These, all of those things should just come in with pipx. They get automatically upgraded if you ask for it. There's a lot of, a lot of good stuff going on there. But if you need to hand out an executable thing for Mac people, this Pi2 app is really nice. Yeah, it's, it works great. And it's, it, yeah, it, there's a few quirks to get it set up. Like you have to use the setup.py and you have to make sure you get the right things in that plist uh, dictionary. But once you figure those out, it's, uh, it's, it's super easy. Mm-hmm. It's also, I guess, worth pointing out, there's a Pi2 EXE for doing this for Windows folks, right? Windows people are like, well, the Pi2 app doesn't do me any good. But there's a Pi2 EXE. And maybe more broadly, there's Pi Installer. And honestly, I don't have enough experience between Pi2 EXE versus Pi Installer, which will also make Windows apps to say which you should choose. But Pi Installer has been pretty solid too. Yeah, I use Pi Installer for a different project of mine that's a command line tool, and it works great. I mean, I've got to build the, that one. I think that it doesn't, Pi Installer doesn't sign it. Uh, the Pi2 Apple automatically signs it. So you have to sign it yourself, whether you use an ad hoc signature or, or a developer signature, but you can do that. I just have a shell script that does that for me. Okay. Interesting. I've used Pi Installer for GUI. Have you checked out GUI, G-O-O-E-Y? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know what to make of it. It's super interesting. And it lets you take any command line tool and turn it into, well, as the name says, like a GUI, where it takes the command line arguments and turns them into widget inputs, like a file might be a browse for a new file, or a yes or no might be a check on or off type of thing. What's your thoughts on GUI before we go on for that? I think for, for simple CLIs, that's a, it's a great tool. I've never, I haven't used it, but I have played around with it a little bit. And it's you know definitely you know, less scary, I guess, than the command line for users that aren't really comfortable in the command line. I have one app that I, the uh, command line app that, that I use Pi Installer for that is fairly complex. It's got over 150 command line options and it's, it's, a, it's a beast. So something like that would, would not work. I, tr- I actually tried it because I was just curious to see how it would work and it just, it kind of blew up. But <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't having it. What yeah. <laughs> wasn't, yeah, it's just like, nope, not gonna right. do this. Gonna but, need a lot of tabs, a lot of tabs, your, please. For your simple <laughs> command line apps, I think it's super useful. Yeah. yeah, because I'm sure a lot of listeners are like, it'd be fantastic to build a little Python app that just does a thing that my coworkers need instead of some manual process that they do. But then as soon as you start to say, and then you open up terminal and you start to type, they're just like, nope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, well, but hey, if, so, if you give them a GUI, it's, it's pretty nice. So one thing I would love to see and since we can't, I mean, we can't do an episode without mentioning Will McCougan is a TUI version of GUI that would just automatically create a TUI interface for you 
from your command line app. Yeah, you're right. We can't do a show without mentioning <laughs> him. And <laughs> the textual stuff, it's coming along. Yeah, it's it's I it's really impressive what he's been doing. So I have a couple of projects in mind that I when I have to I actually get to sit down and have time to learn textual a little bit that I would love to play yeah, around with. Absolutely. I think it would be you're right that that would be a, a pretty nice way to sort of a more, more terminal native way of going, all right, we're going to build this this UI for you, but here's how you get to it. But the one that you and I both use to create apps for real and the one that you've gone to create TextNator with is RUMPS, which stands for Ridiculously Uncomplicated Mac OS Python Status Bar Apps. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the most complicated thing about RUMPS is its name, yeah. right? Like it's amazing to use. Tell people about RUMPS. Yeah, it's super easy. RUMPS does all the heavy lifting of creating the status bar app, which you can see if you're watching the video on the screen there. You get a, either your name of your app or an icon in, this, in the status bar, and then you can click on it and you get some menus. And so, and you can do that in, I don't know, like 10 lines of code with yeah. RUMPS. It's just ridiculously easy. <laughs> The name is accurate, right? It is ridiculously yeah. uncomplicated. Yeah. As you point out, so they've got like a hello world type of thing that has four options on the menu. Or you know, when you click on the thing in the menu bar, it drops down four options. And one of the things that it does is also post a toast notification, you know, native Mac OS notification as well. And in order to make that happen, that really is like 10 lines of Python. Simple exactly. Button. Yeah, it's super simple. And that, so that notification code isn't really hard to do, but you'd have to set it up. You'd have to set up a notification handler and, and register it. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, there, it's quite several steps to do that. And Rumps does it. You just one line, rumps.notification, and boom, you can post a notification. So the basic idea is you create a class. It derives from rumps.apps app. And then you use a bunch of decorators like clicked, to say when a menu item is selected. And then there's a few other calls you can do. You can say, you know, rumps.alert, and that pops out a notification. Uh, you can say rumps.notification. I guess that doesn't pop it out. Sorry, that's like a modal dialogue. You can say rumps.notification, and it pops out the toast. And then you just say app.run, and that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, that's, and you've got a, a full-blown native Mac app written in Python that's up and running. Yep. The one missing element, which... We've already given people the, the key to is this is still just a .py file. And if you try to give this to your friends or distribute it on the internet, it's going to go very badly, right? There's no app bundle. There's no .app file package thing. There's no Python runtime, right? And so that's why you need Py to app is you take your rumps app and then you Py to app it. And then you have something to give out, right? Exactly. And if the, once they get that, they don't even need Python on their machine because it yeah. comes bundled with that. And so it's, it makes, it's really nice. It actually, Py to app will bundle up your Python and all the libraries packages you need in the app folder so that it's got its own copy. How do you make it auto start with system start? And I asked that as somebody who created a Rums app and it is clearly auto starting. I just don't remember how I did it. I know that you can. Yeah, like... I don't know how to do it automatically, but if you go to your system settings and go to your login items, you can add yeah. it there. Right. So it's, it's yeah. a couple extra steps that you've got to do as a user and just say you click, click the plus next to your login items and it'll pop up a, a file dialogue and you can pick the your app to run and it'll run that when you log in. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's what I did to get it to auto start. I was just wondering if there might be some other clever way, but probably not. Right. Yeah, I've seen app, I know it's possible for an app to do that I've because I have apps that you run them and it says, hey, do you want me to run that login? Yes. And it does it. And so I just have not explored doing that myself because that's not something I'm doing all the time. But I, yeah. there's, there probably is a way, whether you can do that from Python or, or the if the permissions will work, I'm not really sure of it. It's, it might be exactly. something worth looking into. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this Rumps project is super cool, but it, you know, it's, it feels like it's not quite super active these days, right? Yeah. That is one downside. There's a fair amount of activity on the repo, but if you look at the issues, there's a number of issues that have been open a long time or PRs yeah. that haven't been merged in. And it doesn't run on Python 3.10, for example. So you'll need to install Python 3.9 or earlier to use it. So there, you know, there's a, there are a few downsides to it, but it's a, I, you know, I, it's a great app. And I hope that, uh, that 
continues to get a little bit of love because it really is super useful. It really is useful. You're, I totally agree. And I'm just thinking, you know, there could be like a, a startup set some preferences, right? Where you just yeah. say, I would like to request to run at startup. You know, if that's permissions not already set, then just set it through whatever objective C OS level yeah. thing you've got to do. Like there's just little things like that that would be really, really nice. You know, the menu bar, those drop downs, like to be able to associate a hotkey with them. Or there's just a few things like, yeah. you know, dividers in menus, right? Like there's just these, they seem like such low hanging fruit that I think this could get a, a big upgrade. It's pretty popular. It has 2.8 thousand stars, but uh, not a ton of traffic recently. And it'd be awesome if people either Jared KS, who originally created, keeps going, or if they've lost interest, then you know someone else could pick it up and run with it. That'd be fun. Yeah, definitely. Oh, Richie out in the audience says creating the P list to execute your script, is just having it in a li tilde library launch agents. So maybe if you just copy a uh, script to start your app over there and it just launches. Okay. Right? Yeah, I'll look at that. You'll, ha you'll have to request access to the library folder as well. Um, so I have to look into that, but yeah. I've done, I've done that before the old, you know, the old fashioned way of actually creating a P list by hand and sticking it in there to, to get something to start. So mm -hmm. thanks Richie. I'll take a look at that. Yeah. That, that's excellent advice. This is in your user profile. So maybe you don't have to ask, but maybe you do. All right. So rumps is a very important building block here for Textinator. Pi to app also super important by the one that I created is called URLify and it just does a bunch of stuff like, you know, creates URL yeah. slugs and like transforms text. That I ended up doing all the time. That's my little, uh, my little app. Cool. So the one, we've got the ability to build the app with Pi to app. We've got a, a way to kind of create a shell that runs in the menu bar and constantly runs in the background, which is, you know, as long as nobody closes the app, right? It's just out of the way. So that's really fantastic. And now you need to start working with some of the, OS level APIs, like you talked about hooking the event for the screenshot and those, those are objective C type things, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so for those, I use Pi OBJC, uh, Pi Objective C, which is a bridge between Python and Objective C. And it, that is, it's an amazing package. If you're a Python programmer and you use a Mac, you really ought to get familiar with Pi OBJC because what that does is exposes everything that Apple's built in, all the native capabilities like vision and machine learning. You mm -hmm. know, the most recent update to Textinator, I added QR code detection. So if you screenshot a QR code, it'll tell, it'll tell you what the URL is. Or oh, the, what wow. The payload it'll is. Decode, decode, it'll decode the, the QR code. The, yeah, decode the QR, QR code and stick it on your clipboard. Nice. But all that's built in to the Apple frameworks and PyOBJC gives you access to call those, you know, fairly easily. There's are, there are some really, there's some quirks to it because Objective-C itself is kind of a quirky language. And so you've got to do the translation between Python and Objective-C. You'll, you'll see a lot of uh, camel case that you don't normally see in Python. Because, <laughs> but um, once you figure those things out, it's super useful. Yeah, there's no attempt to Pythonify or make Objective-C yeah. like the low-level runtime supporting classes to make them Pythonic. Yeah, right? and, and so actually I'm glad. Yeah, Be because when you when you have to go Google, what does this function do? Or, you know, what's this NS file handle and how do I use it? It's a lot easier if you can just cut and paste. Yeah, for sure. One of the things I just, I'm looking at some of these examples, maybe there's some hints in here, but one of the things that's super odd to me about Objective-C, it is one of those languages I'm like, I'm going to try to learn this. And I'm, after a while, I'm like, no, <laughs> no, just, it's just too, it's too weird. And how you have these named these really oddly named methods and then variables, right? Like you can't just say string lower. You've got to get like, you know, I forget what the API is called, but there's like a, a weird set of incantations to sort of invoke a lowercase type of behavior. So how does that, is this, I see like in the example here, it looks like there's a string specifying maybe a ver one of the arguments or something like file handle read completed colon is one of the strings yeah. passed here. So the oh, way... What's the deal with that? Yeah, this one, I'm not super familiar with this notification center API, but looking at what you have on the screen there, you've got the notification center dot add observer underscore selector underscore name underscore object underscore, which if you use my objective C, <laughs> you're going to see a lot of underscores like that, yeah, including, yeah. <laughs> including the trailing underscore. And what that does is, the way Objective-C works, and I'll, I'll, let me caveat, I am not an Objective-C programmer. 
I tried a couple <laughs> of times to learn and just, it just did not grok it. And, but yeah. I've gotten pretty good at interpreting Objective-C through the Python lens so that I can use it in Python because I've got a, quite a few apps that, Python apps that, that use Objective-C calls. So Objective-C has this concept of selectors, which are ba basically sending messages to an object to call specific functions on that object. Oh, I see. And a method on, on an object could have different signatures. And so you might sometimes call it with, with a, different value, a different value or a different number of parameters than you would a different time. And so the selectors handle doing that. And so what this is doing is each of those underscores is, think of it as every time you see an underscore in a pi objective C method call, you need to have a variable. You need to have an argument to that method call because it's, it's, the, it's passing that selector the value that you want for that particular selector. So that's why there's four underscores in this example you've got on the screen and got there's it. four different four values you're yeah. passing in, arguments you're passing in. So if I say add observer underscore selector, underscore name, underscore object, I've got to give it the selector, the name of the object and yeah. the, also itself, yeah. And if you went and looked that up on the Apple Docs, Instead of underscores, you'd see colons. So you'd see add observer, colon, selector, colon, name, colon, object. And so that's the, the decoder ring there. If you're trying to translate to Python is replace the colons with underscores and then add a trailing underscore. And then you got to figure out, okay, well, how, for, for those, that number of arguments, what are those arguments and what type do they need to be? <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, so it's weird, but it's kind of weird in the sense of just it's mirroring Objective-C, which is itself a bit of a, a unique language. Exactly. But that said, this is a cool library that gives you direct access to much of the operating system, right? Yeah, exactly. So you know, Apple's built some, has built some really great frameworks um, like the Vision, right, that does the text detection yeah. for Textinator, which literally takes a few lines. So let's quick about the Vision one here, just because this is one of the core building blocks used, right? Exactly. Yeah. So Vision does a number of different computer vision type tasks for you and really only takes a few lines. It does text detection, find barcodes or QR codes. It'll find faces in an image, detect different objects and images, those kinds of things. And it, and it does it really well. It, it runs on the neural engine, as you said at the beginning of the show. So it's super fast. And you get access to that all from Python. If you use Objective-C, you can directly access that power with just a handful of lines of code. And, and there are a number of Python packages for doing that. There's, a, there's several different Python image to text packages out there, for example. But they're all fairly compute intensive, or you've got to download these big models or whatever. And if you're on a Mac, you can just use them what's already built into your Mac. Yeah, absolutely. And so for example, in Textinator, you just say vision.vn recognize text requests. Yeah. You know, and knit with completion handler, you give it the callback. And yeah. So one thing you'll I notice is you skip top past it, doing... there was an alloc and then it is something you've got to do in Objective-C. You've got to allocate oh, your right. memory. And then there's a whole memory management piece of this you've got to take keep in mind. For the most part, PyOBJC handles that for you, but every now and then it can bite you if you have got a, you, you're allocating a bunch of things and never, and never deallocating them. You can yeah. have a memory yeah, leak, back, but yeah. <laughs> back, back to memory yeah. management. Yeah. Okay. Something you normally and, don't have to think about in Python. Yeah, and then maybe some of the other, you've got the, the natural language ML APIs as well, right? Yeah, there's natural you, language processing built in. You know, all the things that the Mac does to do all those neat Mac things are, for the most part, available to the developer through these frameworks. Oh, excellent. All right, very cool. Yeah, I guess that's probably it for the, the building blocks and stuff. Now that you've got this built, would you have done anything different or are you happy with the way it's come together? I think I've been pretty happy with the way it came together. It works pretty good. I, the most current version ask, will immediately ask for desktop access like we were talking about. That I didn't do that in the first version. I'd put up I left it up to the user to go add that manually. But I, you know, when I realized, hey, that the default location for screenshots is the desktop and 99% of people are going to have it there. Just let's just ask right away for the desktop access and then it, and then it just works out of the box. But yeah, I, it's again, it was a fun little project. It, the initial version took a, you know, a weekend and it's, it's grown a little bit since then. But the whole thing is still only about 500 lines of code and it's a fully functional useful app that I use every day. And so it's, <laughs> it was really fun to be able to build that in Python. There's something very satisfying about having your app do the thing, you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can, of course, download, everyone downloads apps from the app store and various places, but to go, 
but that's my code writing. Yeah. My thing caught that text out of there or whatever it is, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, excellent. I hope this is an inspiration as well as a roadmap for people that want to build interesting things for maybe for themselves, but also for end users in Python on the Mac, right? Rumps, if you want a menu bar app, High Objective C to get access to the framework and platform, High to App to build it in a way that you can hand it out. Very cool. Yeah. A few basic building blocks and you can put something pretty slick to get together, you know, fairly quickly. Yeah. I totally agree. I, the little one that I built with Rumps came together surprisingly well and it does way less than what yeah. you do. yours does. I'm really impressed with you. Yeah. This is great. I've got another, yeah, another Rumps one that I use every day that all it does is tell me when to plug in or unplug my laptop, you know, just to try to keep the battery percentage in it. It has and then has icon of a plug and it changes color depending on whether I should plug in as charging or discharging and whether mm -hmm. I should you know and then it pops up an alert to say plug in your laptop now. It's yeah, super so you, simple, you, but really useful. Absolutely, keep it in the range, not always hundred yeah. percent charged or but don't let it go dead. Yeah, yeah, that's super simple. Those kinds of things are really easy to write with Rums and the various tools we talked about. So definitely, definitely check that out. All right, well, I think we we are out of time, but. Super cool work on Textinator. And like I said, a great roadmap for people to follow if they want to build things like that. So, Rhett, before we get out of here, final two questions. If you're going to work on Textinator or other Python things, what editor are you using these days? I use VS Code. Right on. Extensions, plugins that you're a fan of. Obviously, Python, if you don't you know, hate yourself and want to use spaces on your own. <laughs> yeah, so I use a couple. I, I use GitHub Copilot, okay. which I really enjoy. It is a solo hobbyist developer who only gets a few hours a week to write code. It's really, it's kind of like having a peer programmer and it's, it's, it's really helpful. Like that knowledgeable friend. You're like, how do you connect yes. SQL Alchemy to a database again? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It just, tell, it just does it for you. Um, it's, it's really useful. And the other one that I really like is GitLens. Yeah. GitLens is cool. Yeah. You can sort of, it'll put the, the Git exactly. history. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah, gray right, yeah, right yeah. in line with the code and you can see what changed and when and it's using that yesterday they try to debug a problem and find when did i change this code and yeah it's really that was really useful yeah i was looking at the c python source code with vs code and i had GitLens installed and i was going through some section and i saw this change from like 1994 from guido <laughs> <laughs> and it had why that line was changed i'm like okay this is like a a bit of archaeology or some yeah. history going on here, you know? Yeah, that's neat. Yeah, very neat. Okay, well, definitely a, a good choice there. And then a notable PyPI package. I mean, Rumps is an obvious choice, but if you got something else that you want to throw out, go for it. Yeah, well, I, let me, I've got two for you. One, if uh, we talked about PyOBJC, if you're a Mac developer and you, or you're a Python developer who uses a Mac, definitely take the time to learn that because it, it'll give you, you know, give your Python superpowers. And then the other one, uh, completely unrelated that, I really like is called TextX, and it's okay. basically a parser generator for Python. It's a peg, creates a parsing expression grammar for you out of its own little modeling language. But basically with, if you need to do, if you find that you're writing more than two regexes to parse some code, TextX can, might be able to help you out because it will build a, a parser for you out of its own sort of specification language that then gives you a Python class that parses your text for you. And I've used it in some other projects to actually create my own language to solve a specific, you know, domain problem. Yeah. And it's super useful. It's fairly easy to create a fairly powerful parser. When I hear, I don't have to write regular expressions, that already makes me happy. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Their description here is, in a nutshell, TextX will help you build a textual language in an easy way. You could invent your own language or build support for an already existing one. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, great recommendation. All right, well... Final call to action before we go. People are interested maybe in building apps, Mac apps for the Python, uh, with Python in a broad sense. What, what advice you got for them? I'd say learn PyOBJC, play with Rumps and Py2App and go. There's a lot of great projects already out there on GitHub. Go look at the Textinator source code or, or search from some others. And I think uh, for me, the easiest way to get started is always to look at what somebody else has done than reading through a whole bunch of docs. And so I'd say go find a project that piques your interest and go build something for your map. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, it's been great to get a look inside what you're doing with this this app and how you built it for Mac and also a bit of a peek inside the Space Force. So 
Thanks for being here. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. It was a lot of fun. You bet. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code TALKPYTHON, all one word. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.